So let me say again, good morning. It is good to see you guys. Everybody doing all right? Uh, uh, there was a bunch of ladies here for some reason this weekend. Did any of you attend the women's conference? Pretty great, right? You still have the energy to be here. That doesn't mean you're allowed to sleep during this sermon if you've been here all weekend. Um, I want to just kind of invite you guys with me for a second. Wherever you are in your faith journey, and, and I, I'm leaving room for the possibility that there are people here that are in every possible place. There's probably people who are like, look, I'm not sure if I even know if there is a God, and if there is a God, I don't know who that God is. And there are other people who are like, no, I've just, I've just been introduced to Jesus, and I'm starting to learn a little bit, and but I don't know very much about him. And there are other people who've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Wherever it is that you find yourself today, um, I'm gonna ask you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you had 100% confidence in God. That, that there was never a doubt, that there was never any confusion, that you were 100% confident in the Lord, that you really knew Jesus as well as you could possibly know him, that you really believed his word 100%. You were confident that God is God, Jesus is our Savior, the word of God is in the Bible. And now imagine that you not only know him well, you, you not only believe the word and have confidence in the Bible, but imagine that you had that level of faith and you lived every moment of every day in light of that faith. In other words, that you didn't just believe the word of God, but that you took the word of God and applied it to your life, and there was never any hiccups, never any moments when you were sort of going things your own way. I want you to picture that. Use your imagination, right? If you, if you never doubted, if you always understood that God is infinitely good, that God is infinitely powerful, that God is infinitely loving, infinitely wise, infinitely sovereign in all things, and you never had any doubt about that. Now, get that picture in your mind, because we're using our imaginations, right? And imagine how different your life would be if, if you absolutely believed God 100% and applied what you believe 100% of the time. See, here's the thing about faith. Faith is not some mysterious, theoretical, religious, philosophical system. Faith is way more practical than that. Faith is incredibly practical by definition. In fact, there's a working definition of faith that we like to use around here. We say, faith is believing that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do, and then acting on that belief. Because for too many of us and too many Christians, it's really easy for us to go, yep, I, I'm, I understand about God. I could tell you about the doctrine of the Trinity. I've memorized uh, lots of Bible uh, scriptures. I, I know where the book of Amos is in the Old Testament. I mean, I am really there. There's a whole bunch of us that uh, have been sitting in church, listening to sermons, getting up every day, reading our Bibles. We're very, very, very familiar with the Word of God. We can quote it chapter and verse, but we don't always 
apply it. And that is where Jesus is going to try to take us because without any action, it's not true biblical faith. We could talk about our faith all we want, but if your faith doesn't translate from what you think in your head to what you do with your life, it's not actually biblical faith. But how different our lives would be if we really believe that God is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he'll do, and then acted in every moment of every day in accordance with that belief. I bet most of our lives would be significantly different. We would would live in practical ways different. We'd look at everything differently. We would look at our trials differently. We We would look at our blessings differently, look at our opportunities differently. We would think about practical things like money or our jobs or our possessions differently. We would look at temptation differently. We would deal with failure differently. Everything would be different if our faith was actually allowed to come alive and get beyond our mind and into our daily living. So that's where we're going today, because for the past several weeks, we've been looking at these parables of Jesus, these stories that Jesus loved to tell. He was a master teacher, and he spent most of his time teaching by telling stories, and we've been sort of digging up some of those stories from all over the Gospels uh, uh, for the last uh, couple of months. Um, and today, we're going to look at one of the simplest of the many um, parables that Jesus told. Uh, This is a short story. Don't get your hopes up. That doesn't mean it's a short sermon. (laughs) I figure if Jesus said less, that means I should say more, right? That's how I think about that. This is a very short parable. It's extremely simple. It is to the point, and it is very, very easy to understand. Our problem today is not going to be that we don't understand this story. Our problem is going to meet us at the question of whether or not we're applying this story, whether or not we're living it out. It's become known as the parable of the two builders. It's uh, found in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to start digging to the book of Matthew, beginning of your New Testament, chapter 7. It's the end of the most famous sermon ever preached known as the Sermon on the Mount, Right? Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is sort of launching his teaching ministry. And in doing that, he is planning to challenge the way religious people think about everything. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount kind of does. Uh, Last week, if you remember, we looked at uh, um, one of Jesus' parables that really caused us to compare Outward religion, remember we talked about having your mouth washed out with soap doesn't change your heart? Outward religion, rules and uh, traditions that you have to jump through compared to inward transformation, and we applied that to forgiveness and bitterness in our lives. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenged the way people thought about almost everything. He starts the sermon by giving this list of blessings and redefining what the blessed life is. And he says things like, you know who the really, really blessed people are in the world? The ones who hunger and thirst. You know, who, you know who's really, really, really blessed? The poor. You know who's really blessed? 
those who are persecuted. And you can already imagine, he's just beginning his message and the people are beginning to elbow one another and murmur and write notes to each other. Are you listening to what this guy's saying? He's got this whole thing backwards. And that's exactly the point. He goes through the Beatitudes and he says everything's sort of the opposite of what the world says. And he explains that when you have these kinds of difficulties and these kinds of struggles, it, it opens you up to the, to the help of God. And then, then you're able to receive God's blessing. And he talks about that. Then he gets into talking about the law with Jewish people who have lived being taught the law that they have to follow all these things. And then he talks about behaviors. And, and he basically um, goes beyond the outward behavior down to the heart. He goes, I know you've all been taught that you shouldn't murder anybody, right? Nobody, don't murder anybody. Everybody gets that, right? He goes, look, it's not just that you don't murder people. Where does murder come from? It comes from hatred. And where does hatred reside? In the heart. We got to deal with the heart. He goes, I know you've been told not to commit adultery. I'm here to tell you, get rid of lust in your life because that's lust that leads to adultery. If we can get rid of these things that are in the heart, we'll change people's lives. And he talks about that for a while. And he talks about loving your enemies, which is a bizarre concept. Take the people who hate you the most, the dangerous people, the ones that are out to get you, and I want you to focus yourself on loving them, Jesus says. And then he talks about how to deal with the poor and about giving and supporting the poor. And he talks about prayer. He talks about fasting and all these religious practices. He gets into um, giving and he talks about anxiety and how to live free from anxiety. He talks about judging people. He even gets into how to get to heaven. He goes, I know that a lot of you guys are religious, and, and it's like you're on this giant road, and everybody's the same. You're all dressed in your Sunday best, and you're all got your big Bible under your arm, and you're all walking on this nice, smooth, wide road. And he goes, I want to tell you, that's the road that leads to destruction. But there's a narrow way, and there are a few that are on it, and that's the road that leads to life. And he's just challenging them in all of these super practical things, and, and he's trying to say that faith is not just a name that we give to our religious belief system. Faith is intensely practical, and it should affect the way that we live every moment of every day. So let me put it another way. The Sermon on the Mount was Jesus saying, if you really had big faith, if you really believed God, here's what you would do. If you, if you really had trust in God, here's how you would live your life. And he spends an hour or so just explaining all of that. And it's helpful because in the American church, I think there's an epidemic of people thinking that having a good spiritual life is a matter of showing up and getting information. It's about attendance and information. You know, uh, I heard a good sermon. That's that. I have a good spiritual life. I, I read my Bible this morning. I have a good spiritual life. I haven't missed a Sunday morning worship service in eight months. I have a great spiritual life. And we've sort of accepted this idea that if you show up at church and you get a Bible lesson, that's what it is to have a great spiritual life. Jesus says No. My life only changes not when I show up at church, not when I hear a good Bible message, 
but when I apply the truth of God's word to my life. Till that point, no change. Now, you may be thinking, be careful, pastor, because you're, you're, you're dancing really close to the idea of works theology, right? This is not, it's not supposed to be about works. It's supposed to be about grace. You're saved by grace. Listen, we're not talking about how you get to heaven. We're not talking about how you enter into a relationship with Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that if you've entered into that relationship and you have genuine saving faith, it's never alone, It's always accompanied by a changed life. It's always accompanied by works. Jesus doesn't move into your heart and then act like a visitor. He moves into your heart and rearranges all the furniture. He moves into your heart and starts making wholesale changes in your life. And so to to be in relationship with God is intensely practical. Now, if you lived in Israel at the same time as Jesus, let's say, and you were able to follow him around and you listened to every single lesson he ever taught, not just the ones we have recorded in scripture, but all the ones that the disciples got to hear while they were sitting around the campfire at night, all the ones that they talked about when they were on the road, all the things that didn't get recorded. You heard every sermon he preached. You went with him when he went into the synagogues and preached, and you went with him when he stood on the hillside and preached, and you listened to everything that he said, and somehow you managed to sneak in your iPad from the 21st century and show up there in first century Israel, and you could put it all down in your iPad, and you could categorize it all, and you could get it all by subject matter and all by scripture and all of that kind of stuff, and you had it all, and then you memorized memorized every bit of it. And and if you took your Bible and if you memorized the whole Old Testament in Hebrew and English, and then you took the whole New Testament and you memorized it in Greek and Aramaic and English, and you got it down and you had every bit of knowledge there was to have, and you didn't apply any of it in your life, you would be worse off than the person who never heard the name of Jesus. If it doesn't translate from our mind to our hearts to our lives, it's not real faith. You can learn everything there is to know. Let's think about it like this. Let's put it in today's terms. Learn everything, pick a subject. Let's say you want to learn about nutrition. You want to do like a diet, exercise, nutrition, right? You want to learn everything there is to know about that. First of all, I don't like you very much, but if that's what you want to know, okay. You want to learn everything about diet, exercise, and nutrition. And so you enroll in a, in a college program to get a degree in this. You start reading everything that's ever been written. You join a gym and you get a personal trainer and he explains to you how to do all the exercise programs. And, and you actually get a PhD in uh, exercise and nutrition. And you write books about this that they use as textbooks in college. And people go, man, you are obviously an expert in this topic. And there you sit on the couch with your Twinkies and Mountain Dew. <laughs> that is how too many Christians I have known live. We got the bumper stickers on our cars. We go to the right concerts. We listen to the right Christian music. We, we can quote verses. We have the really cool trendy t-shirts that say, hey, look, I'm a Christian, right? I even heard of a guy one time that had the Last Supper tattooed on his arm. 
you imagine that? There, there, are, there are some crazy people out there, right? And, and you could get all of that going on, but guys, you know what the world is saying about the church? They're not saying they don't know much. They're saying they don't live what they say they know. That's the problem. And so Jesus comes with this parable of the builders, and he says, I'm going to address that issue because that's not Christianity. Christianity is intensely practical. It's a way of life. This is not enough to know about God. He wants full access to your life so that he can transform you from the inside out and so that he can use you to change the world. And if you were to take all the topics on the Sermon on the Mount and say, what are you going to do to summarize it? You could summarize it this way. You would say that Jesus is basically saying, listen, the actual life of faith is intensely practical. It should change every area of your life. True saving faith is intensely practical. So after saying all that, He's done his Sermon on the Mount, and now he's got to close. Now, if you go to seminary and you take classes on preaching or you read books on preaching, they all say at least this. They all will tell you the same thing. Whatever else you do, make sure you leave them with something good. Make sure you close your message with something memorable. You got to surprise them. You got to show them something. You got to touch their heart. You got to give them some application, something that will stick with them. So when they walk out the door, they don't forget what God's been trying to say to them by the time they get to their car. Any teaching class, any preaching class will teach you that, right? And so Jesus, the greatest preacher ever, is coming to the end of his biggest sermon, and he's going to save one illustration for the end. And the last thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. So turn there with me, if you will, if you're not already there. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Therefore, after all that he said, therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, we're going to talk about construction. We're going to talk about building and my reputation as a construction worker is well documented. Uh, I'm not generally very good with do-it-yourself projects. And, uh, but people know that about me and we joke about that, but you know what? What you probably don't know is that uh, I used to work in the construction industry. Before I became a pastor, I was a district manager for an electrical contractor and we, we did um, temporary power for job sites all over Southern California. And my, I had to learn as much as I needed to know about electricity so that I could go meet with superintendents, talk to them about what they were doing, and um, you know, design their electrical system for their jobs. That's what I used to do. And um, the interesting thing is that in doing that, um, I learned all kinds of stuff. 
but I was still really lousy with tools in my hand. I was still the guy who, when he leans the ladder against the power pole and begins to climb, the ladder falls, right? I'm, I was the guy who, when he's just trying to, you know, to, to just splice a wire and uh, he forgets to turn off the breaker. I was that guy, you know? Um, so then I became a pastor and I was a youth pastor. And the senior pastor of our church by trade was a concrete mason. And so what he did was, we were both off on Fridays. He insisted that I be off on Friday because that's the day that he was off because what he liked to do with his day off, I kid you not, almost every week on his day off, he poured concrete. That's what he did. That was his fun, relaxing way to spend a day, right? He poured concrete on his day off and he said, come on, Doug, it's your day off too. Come with me, we're gonna pour concrete. And I became his apprentice. So I had to learn about pouring concrete and I did everything I could to make it clear that you're gonna be sorry that I'm on this site, right? I had to walk through the wet concrete and go, oh, sorry, am I not supposed to do that? One time I had a wheelbarrow full of concrete and I hit the curb and dumped the whole thing into the rose garden. That went over really, really big. Um, good news is no more weeds in that area, right? So I did the best I could, but he kept making me come. So I ended up learning about concrete. And one time we were doing a room addition and we had to pour the foundation for this room addition. And, uh, and we spent like hours and hours installing rebar. And we're just putting rebar. You know what rebar is? Those steel bars that reinforce concrete. And, and we're just putting rebar and you have to tie it all together and it has to intersect like a checkerboard. And there's just hundreds of pieces of rebar and we're spending all day doing this. And I finally said, hey, why are we putting so much rebar? You can't even see it. Why? Why go to all this trouble for something in the concrete that you can't even see? And so many of us as Christians, that's our thing. We dress up our lives so people can see it. And the parts people can see, they look good. But there's no rebar. And then what happens is that in Southern California, he, you know, this was the dumbest thing I said. Why are we putting all this rebar. Then I had to sit down for a half an hour and listen to him explain the significance of rebar in Southern California where we have earthquakes and houses go like this. And like, oh dear God, just shoot me, right? I, but I had to learn all this stuff because it turns out if you don't reinforce the concrete when the earth quakes, guess what happens to the house? It falls. It's like the three little pigs straw house. It falls. And so Jesus has got me in mind when he's explaining this, that, that there are some people who are way more worried about what people can see than what is actually underneath the surface. And he says, you better start to build your house on something more solid than the sand. Two builders, they each build a beautiful house. My guess is the second guy's house was more beautiful than the first guy's house because he didn't even spend any money on the foundation, right? And so he had extra money for really cool drapes and fancy uh, roof shingles and all these kind of things. And, 
if you drove into that neighborhood and saw these two houses, you would see the first one and go, wow, what a nice house. You come around the cur curve and you see the second one right on the beach. You go, oh my gosh, I'm so jealous of that guy. That house is amazing, right? You see these two houses, you go, great location, but the second guy's house is even closer to the water. And it's pretty awesome. And everything was great until the storm came. Now, can I just tell you something you all already know? Sooner or later, the storms are coming. Amen? Is that not your experience? Sooner or later, you, you could be cruising along in life and it's just a glassy sea and everything's just fine, but then all of a sudden the wind picks up and the storm's coming. And, and, you know, some of you right now are in the midst of a significant storm in your life and the wind is blowing and, and uh, everything's shaking. And if you're not in that place right now, my bet is you recently were. And if you, if you weren't recently in that place and you're not in that place right now, good news. It's coming tomorrow because <laughs> that's the nature of life, isn't it? There are storms from time to time, and you can't always predict them, and you don't always see them coming, but there are storms coming in life. And so, since we know that there are storms coming in life, it is not the person who has the best interior decorator who wins. It's not the person with the coolest swimming pool in the backyard or the nicest car in the driveway. It's not the person who has the most expensive art hanging on the walls. When the storm comes, you want to be the guy who spent money on the foundation. You want to be the one who made sure that your house was built on something that would hold it even when the storm comes. Some of us have decorated our lives beautifully. People are so impressed. But friends, the storms are coming. And when the storm comes, what matters most is your foundation. I was thinking about that just this week, and, and something came across my desk. Um, there's this guy, he's a uh, quarterback in the NFL. His name is Nick Foles. Nick Foles, if you're not a sports fan, don't know who Nick Foles is. He was the Super Bowl winning quarterback two years ago with the Philadelphia Eagles. Even though he had been the backup quarterback, but the regular quarterback got hurt and he led them all the way to the Super Bowl and he was the Super Bowl MVP and it was just this incredible experience. Nick Foles had the time of his life and then because he had won the Super Bowl, he was up as a free agent and he signed a contract with a new team for a bazillion dollars. So now he's a multimillionaire, famous, Super Bowl winning quarterback, and he is the quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars beginning this season. And in the first game for the Jaguars this year, on the 10th play of the first game, he broke his collarbone. This is the moment he's been waiting for in his career. This is the chance. He's finally made it. He's finally on the big stage. He finally gets to do what he's been preparing for his whole life. And he gets hurt in the first game. And he didn't play in a single game all season long because of this broken collarbone. Because if you're a quarterback, you kind of need your collarbone to be intact, right? And um, last week, he was finally healthy enough to play. But here's what had happened. Between the time he got hurt and the time he was ready to play, the guy who filled in for him was a guy no one had ever heard of. Nobody ever heard of this guy. It was Mr. Nobody. And he fills in at quarterback and sets the world on fire. 
And he just has, he's leading them to victory after victory after victory. And they're having this great year under this backup quarterback while Nick Foles has got his arm in a sling. And so finally, um, it comes to last week and he gets a chance to play. And after the game, they interview, you, the quarterback has to go to a press conference. This is, this is a, you know, 100 reporters in the room. And he stands up on the stage and they ask him questions. And what he said in the press conference blew my mind so much that instead of telling you about it, I want you to hear it. So watch the screen. Though week after week not playing, you're a football player. You're watching this young kid go out. This Minshew mania is going crazy. I know you're a man of faith and I know you're trying, but you're also human. I mean, ever any doubts coming up in your mind as you go through that? No, that's where, you know, right when, this, right when I felt this thing break and I was going into the locker room, I just realized, you know, I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But at the end of the day, as I got, if this is the journey you want me to go on, I'm going to glorify you in every action, um, good or bad. And, you know, I still could have joy in an injury. Um, and that, that's people hear that and say, that's crazy. But it's like when you believe in Jesus and you, you go out there and you play and that's that changes your heart. And you only understand it when, you know, that purpose in your life, just like when I hoisted the Lombardi trophy. The reason I'm smiling is my faith was in Christ in that moment. I realized I didn't need that trophy to define who I was because it was already in Christ. And that's my message when I play. Same thing happens when I get injured. We tend to make this so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. It really isn't. If you make it about yourself, you're probably going to go home at night, lay your head on your pillow and be very alone and very sad. And then hopefully someday you can find that purpose in your life because my purpose isn't football, it's impacting people. And I, my, my ministry happens to be the locker room. And I've been able still to get to know people, get to know these guys through an injury. Though I might not be playing, that is difficult from a fleshly perspective, but from the spiritual perspective, from my heart, I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm at a better situation here as a person than I was before because of the trial I just went under. And I know that's a sermon in itself, but that's how I go through life. And the good Lord's been there to, you know, it's not always about prosperity. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it, there's trials along the way, but they equip your heart to be who you are. So um, when I step on the field, I'm going against a man in Frank Reich, who's very similar. He's a guy that I admire more than anything. He's a guy that has impacted my life so much, and he's going to be on the opposing sideline. So um, that's going to be fun. Go ahead. What do you think of that? Isn't that cool? That was not an interview with a Christian magazine. That was the national media. And what blew my mind up, just like blown away by this, is not only did he say that in the press conference, but the Jaguars tweeted it out on their team Twitter account. So the gospel just went flying out to everybody. And what was his message? Because the question, I don't know if you picked it up at the beginning, the question was this, hey, look, when you being hurt and then this guy comes in and does so well, were you kind of bothered by all of that? And, and that was his answer. No, um, you know, I, this was not what I expected. It was not what I hoped for. I was injured, and then this other guy was doing great. But you know what? It isn't about me. It's about God. And because of that, I was able to grow through this whole thing. Let me tell you something. That was a storm he didn't see coming, and he survived it. His house stood in the midst of the storm, and then God could use him to even... Share it with people. So let me just wrap it up. Where have you built your house? What is your foundation comprised of? 
In Jesus' story, there's two guys with two houses. One is built on the rock of God's word, and when the storms came and the wind blew, it stood strong through it all. The other guy built a beautiful and impressive house right down by the water on the sand, but sand makes a lousy foundation. So when the storms came and the wind blew, the whole thing came crashing down. And Jesus said that the guys, these guys were like two men who built their lives on two different foundations. The one that survived the storm is the man who built his life not on Jesus, not on Jesus' words, but on the application of Jesus' words. Did you pick that up? Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, they all heard the words, and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then who does he compare the other guy to? A guy who heard these words of mine and did not act on them. It's not about how much you know. It's not about how often you show up. It's not about whether you have a bumper sticker on your car that says, in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. <laughs> it's not about that stuff. It's about whether or not you're taking the word of God, letting it pour into your head, down into your heart, and out through your life. And he says the difference between the house that comes crashing down and the house that stands in the midst of storms is that the one guy is actually applying the word of God in his life. The man whose life was a disaster, he also heard Jesus' words, but he didn't put them into practice. When I was a youth pastor a thousand years ago, um, I, had this, uh, I had this group of junior high boys, Sunday school class, early Sunday morning. They wanted to be in bed. They did not want to be there. It's 8.30 on Sunday mornings. And my job is to keep their attention and, and teach them the Word of God. And so all week long, I'm studying and I'm breaking down the Greek and I'm figuring out the illustrations and I'm looking for all of the passages that go together. And I am ready and I stand up. I got desks for them. They are in rows. They are all ready to go and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Not. And, and I'm teaching them and I'm just standing up here going, you know, Jesus, and then all of a sudden, like a spitwad hits me in the forehead. That was my Sundays. That's how it went. These guys couldn't stay focused for more than 30 seconds, and so I'm just losing my mind. I'm going, what do I do? And I went to this experienced youth pastor, and I'm like, look, I got all these junior high boys, and they can't sit still, and they won't listen. What do I do? And he goes, listen, you, gotta, you can't sit them in rows and expect them to sit still. You're going to have to, like, get some activity built into your lesson and all that. I'm like, okay. So I go to the, the Christian bookstore. I find a curriculum, a Sunday school curriculum written for junior high boys called Active Learning Bible Studies. I'm like, I've got it. Okay. So now we're going to talk about spiritual warfare, everybody. Here's a verse from Ephesians that says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, I want you to get up and I want you guys to take all of the desks and build a fort over there. And then I want you guys to build a fort out of all the desks over here, and I'm going to give you each 20 bags of marshmallows, and you're going to stand up and peg each other with 
marshmallows and we're going to simulate spiritual warfare. And they're like, yeah! And they're all like throwing stuff and diving over desks, commando style, attacking one another. And, and I'm like, oh, finally, finally, it's working. I did this for 16 straight weeks. Every week was different. We were lighting the place on fire. We're, you know, blowing things up. These boys are having the time of their life. So after a quarter of this, 16 straight weeks, I take them out to pizza, right? I'm like, guys, tell me, what was the best part? What, what did you get out of all of this stuff we've been doing? And they're like, um, oh, that marshmallow war was awesome. Remember? And they all talk about it. I go, yes, marshmallow war, right? What was the point of that? They're like, uh... I go, anybody else, what did you, oh, I remember that time we exploded this thing. Yeah, what was that all about? Uh, right? Not one of them remembered one thing. Not one of them learned anything, right? And, and it wasn't that they didn't show up. They just didn't get it. I think a lot of churches have fallen into the trap of entertaining people to death. And the show is impressive. But if the word of God is not getting through the ears and into the brain and down to the heart and out through your lives, it's a waste of time. So here's what I've discovered after 40 plus years of Bible reading. Ready? Reading the Bible doesn't always make you feel better. In fact, I'm going to say more often than not, it makes me feel worse. It makes me feel things like guilty and ashamed. Um, I remember back when I was a teenager and had just come to Christ, it was the 70s, and um, there was the, we were just trying to do anything we could. This was before there was great worship bands and all that. We're trying to do whatever we could to get these kids interested in what we're doing, and uh, they're like listening to rock and roll and doing all that kind of stuff. We're like, how do we, what if we took Christian hymns and we put them to the music of the songs that everybody is listening to on the radio. And so we decided to do that. There's, um, there's a, a song, some of you are old like me will remember, there's a song um, by the Eagles, right? And it's called Peaceful Easy Feeling. You guys know that song? So, uh, so you know, I like the way your sparkling earrings lay against your skin so brown and I want to sleep wait we can't sing this in youth group right this is not good so we're like okay how, how do we do a cool song like that with the right lyrics right so we finally figured it out and we did this amazing grace has That's what we did. 
was cool. And the kids liked it. And they went home singing, I got a peaceful, right? And then I thought about this and I went, wait a second. We just taught them the Bible. Somebody opens this book, it does not give you a peaceful, easy feeling. Almost never. Every once in a while, there's a really cool verse, and you're like, oh, I feel so much better now. But man, I don't know about you, I read that Bible, I'm just like, oh, seriously, God? It is so hard to see the things that God sees in my life, and the Bible is like a mirror where you have to really see yourself. And, and so this whole peaceful, easy feeling idea, it's not a thing with the Bible. In my life, the Bible is disturbing, And when Jesus spoke to crowds, go back and read this. You can find this in Luke 4. We won't look it up tonight. You can, or this morning. You can can find this in Luke 4. In Luke 4, he's preaching Jesus. He's got this big crowd, and he has the audacity. You talk about a hot-button topic in our society right now. It was a hot-button topic in his society. He decided to preach on foreigners. He was preaching on how God loves foreigners, He was preaching on how we ought to be reaching out and meeting the needs to foreigners, right? That we ought to be accepting people who are not like us and all that kind of stuff. Very similar to the kind of things that are being debated in politics today. That's what he was talking about. And he basically said to these Jews, listen, God loves some of these foreigners more than he loves you guys. (laughs) And they lost their minds. And in Luke 4, 28 and 29, here's what it says, I'll paraphrase. It says, they went and grabbed him and took him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. That's how much they loved this sermon. Man, when I preach on Sunday mornings, I I really want you to like it. I, I really hope that You'll come up to me afterwards and go, oh my gosh, that funny story you told, I was dying. Oh my gosh, it was so funny. I'm so glad I came today. Or I want you to come and say, oh, that poignant illustration just touched my heart. Like, I love that, but let me just be brutally honest with you for a second. I really don't care if you like the message. I care if you apply the message. Because you can clap, oh, it's so good. And then you head out to the parking lot and live the same way you lived before you came in. And I have failed. Because I'm preaching for life change, not for information. The scripture says knowledge puffs up. We gotta be careful. Some of us have been in so many Sunday school classes, Bible studies, sermons, grace groups. Our heads are gigantic with knowledge. We can't even fit through the door. But our lives are not being changed because we're not applying the word of God. It's been said that unapplied truth is like unapplied paint. The value of paint is in the application. When I preach, I want your lives to change. Because the difference between the person who flourishes in spite of the storms and the person whose life crumbles in the storm is not whether they heard the message. The difference is whether they did it, whether they applied it. And so you've been hearing preaching for the last nine weeks on the parables of Jesus. 
So a lot of you ladies were here all weekend. You heard speaker after speaker stand up and give great, amazing messages from the Word of God. And now, congratulations, you have survived this sermon. So, so you've heard all this all weekend long. And so it's not a lack of knowledge that is going to be your downfall. Here's the question. You've been exposed to the Word of God. What are you gonna do about it? The answer to that question will determine the direction of your life. Let's pray together. God, we just want to say thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your patience with us. Father, there's been so many things that have gone into my head and never worked their way out through my life. I'm sure that's true for many of us. I, I, I thank you for being so gracious and patient with us. But at the same time, God, I pray that'll change. Father, I pray that the days of hearing but not applying would end here. I pray that our lives would be changed and that through those changed lives, you would change the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.